You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. Take your Bibles and go to Isaiah chapter number 50. We have gone up through verse number 6, and we introduced this the thoughts going on in uh, verse number 6, but we need to review first what's been going on here in chapter number 50. Uh, the servant of God, and in capital S, servant, we're talking about Jesus Christ here, is speaking. God's servant. It says here in chapter 50, verse number 1, Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stinketh because there is no water, and die for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. And I was not rebellious, neither turned I away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And we'll pause there. We see, thus saith the Lord at the beginning in verse number one. And he asked this question to Israel. Remember how Israel in the previous chapter in Verse number 14, in chapter 49, verse 14, Zion responded to God saying, I'm here to help. Will you please rely upon me? I can take care of you. And in verse 14 of chapter 49, Zion said, Israel said, the Lord's forsaken us. My Lord's forgotten us. And so he's going to continue to say, to basically get across to them, no, I have not forgotten you, and no, I have not forsaken you in any way. Will you please listen to me? And that's what he begins to do here in chapter 50. So where is, the, where is this bill of divorcement? Can you produce the document that shows, I have cut you off, Israel? Hey, that that's even implies today, doesn't it? Is there a document that shows that God has cut Israel completely off and divorced them, and they are now no longer a part of his inheritance? Well, no. There is no document that states that. And so God, just as he says in the book of Revelation, and throughout the scripture, is going to return back to his people, Israel even during the end times. Even after the church has been raptured, he will turn his attention back to his people, Israel. He says, where's that bill of divorcement? Who, who, which one of my creditors did I sell you to? The fact is, I did not cut you off, Israel. You cut yourselves off with your own behavior and sin. The fact is, I did not sell you to the creditors. The fact is, you sold yourselves over to the creditors. You sold yourselves over and put yourselves in debt because of your behavior. He says, that's why when I came and I knocked on the door and I opened the front door and I said, honey, I'm home. That's kind of 
what he's talking about here in verse number two. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, there was none to answer. Honey, I'm home. Nothing. Empty walls, empty rooms as the, the, his voice echoes back to him and he realizes something's up. Everybody's gone. God says, that's why you weren't there. It wasn't because I got rid of you. It was because you walked away. He says in verse two again, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Is there some sort of fault or lacking in me or my ability or my power that would prevent me from being able to bring you out of whatever rebellion and sin you might find yourself in? Is my hand shortened that it cannot save? Yes, maybe your forefathers worshipped false gods. Yes, maybe you lived in sin. Yes, maybe you've made these faults in the past. Yes, maybe you've got these stains upon your record. But is my hand too short that it can't reach even you? Think about that for a second. Maybe you can ask that question about yourself because, hey, you know yourself pretty well, right? You know uh, the deepest, darkest things of your thoughts, and you know the deepest, darkest things of your words and of your entertainment and the music and other things, your, your doubts, your fears. You know those things above and beyond anybody else. And I tell you what, all of us harbor those things to a certain extent. You know yourself, and so it's easy for us to say, well, God would have to reach down pretty far to be able to reach me. But God says, is my hand too short that it cannot redeem? This is a rhetorical question. The obvious answer to that question is no. What that means is there is not a human walking upon this earth today who has committed a sin so grievous that God is not capable of reaching down and grabbing a hold of their hand like he grabbed Peter's hand up on the Sea of Galilee as Peter sunk beneath the waters and cried out to the Lord. But that's the part that's necessary. It is when we sink beneath the waters, but cry out unto the Lord. Israel was not crying out unto the Lord. Israel was crossing their arms and saying, Hrumph. God has forsaken us. God doesn't remember us anymore. He doesn't love us anymore as they sink beneath the waves. And God says, no, my hand is right here. There's no excuse for anybody in this culture today or in our nation today to die and to go to hell. The word of God is more prevalent in society than it has ever been. It is saturated. People quote scripture all the time and they don't even realize it because it has become such a part of our culture. Now, our culture is trying to erase that. Our culture, our culture is trying to make that so that it is not so. But today, everyone has easy and instant access to Scripture in multiple versions at any point in time that they want it. They can easily access the gospel. They can go online and they can find written and, and video and audio that will share with them the Word of God and the gospel and the good news about Jesus Christ. It hasn't always been that way around the world. But it is right now. And with that much light, is there any excuse for someone to still die and go to hell? I think excuse is the wrong word there. Yes, there is so much light. At the same time, there is so much darkness. And those who are supposed to be the light, the church, the Christians, have covered up our lights. So yes, while there is more access to light today than has ever been before, and every person on the planet pretty much has access to it, 
if they should want it. The fact is, they're not going to know they need or want something they have not seen in many ways. And they need to see that in us. They need to see that light. They need to see that example. They need to hear the words of God coming out of our mouths because they're not going to just go and type in our website and think to themselves one day, you know what? I need to hear some Bible. Maybe that happens occasionally. That's not how it usually works out. How it usually works is you're the first Bible that they usually read. In some cases, the only Bible they ever read. Your behavior and your responses, whether or not you say praise the Lord, whether or not you use Jesus' name in an appropriate way. Some people have never heard Jesus' name used appropriately. They've only heard it taken in vain. Some people have never heard anybody talk knowledgeably about God before. All they've heard is speculation and, and foolishness concerning what some unsaved person who doesn't know anything about Scripture thinks about God or thinks God should be, or what Hollywood says about God, or what the you know, ladies on the talk shows you know, have to say about God, or what Oprah Winfrey has to say about God. But for somebody who actually reads the Bible and has a relationship with them, they need us to talk about God. They need to hear it from us. He says, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? And the answer to that question again is no. There is not a person on this planet today who is so far deep that God's hand cannot reach them. There is not a person who has gone so far away from God today that they cannot turn and come back. This, always, this, this concept always makes me think of Jonah. Jonah tried so hard to be out of God's will. Jonah went and paid for a fare to get on a boat and go the opposite direction. He could have just stayed put. He could have saved himself the whole problem of, you know, being swallowed by a great fish. If he had just stayed where he was and said, no, thanks, God, not interested. Instead, Jonah went and got in a boat and headed in the opposite direction. And God didn't say, okay, fine, I'll find somebody else. He raised a storm to cause Jonah to change his mind. But Jonah didn't change his mind. What did Jonah do? He said, I would rather be cast into the sea than to get this right. Just kill me. Just get rid of me. He got that low where he was just saying, just toss me in. Let me drown. Let me put me out of my misery. Instead of me having to deal with this and get right before God and go and do this very tough thing that I have to do, which was go to, to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, a very pagan, wicked people, a very scary people to go and to preach the word of God to them. He was willing to just let them kill him, and he talked them into it. And they threw him into the water, and God went so far as to prepare in advance a great fish to come and to swallow him up to protect him from the environment until he had the opportunity to repent. Get things right before God, and then send him supernaturally on his way to Nineveh. Think about how far God went in that situation. Now, for God, it was nothing. How far is God willing to go to bring back the prodigal son? How far is God willing to go to bring the lost sheep? How far is God willing to go to get a hold of your heart or to get a hold of your family member's heart to bring them back? We think to ourselves, they're too far gone. We think to ourselves, they're so far away from God, they've rejected him so many times. Or even as a Christian, they're so cold-hearted and so backslidden. I think it is a hopeless cause. 
understand this. Not even Israel, who didn't just turn their back on God or just forget him or just stop going to church, they had gone so far as to start worshiping false gods. They had gone so far as to enter into prostitution as part of worship. They had gone so far as to uh, live extraordinarily immoral lives. They had gone so far as to allow that kind of lifestyle come into the temple. They had gone quite far. And God looks at them and he says, I'm still your God and I can still reach you and pull you out if you'll just call. There is no hopeless case. That's all in verse number two, <laughs> even though I already went over verse number two. He gives a, in verse two, he talks about what he's able to do. Um, Behold, I rebuke to dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. The fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. These are things that he's able to do. I clothed the heavens with blackness. And I mentioned last week how he was probably talking about the sky turning dark as Jesus hung there upon that cross. And for three hours, you know, the sky becomes dark as midnight. We move on up here to verse number five with one of the thoughts I, I began to close with yes, last week. The Lord hath opened my ear. And we talked about the idea of a servant uh, willingly choosing to remain their masters for the rest of their lives and having that all put through their ears. And I don't know if an earring was replaced there in that, in that hole or what it was, but uh, but it was a signification, an outward signifier that they now belong to this person willingly for life. Because now this thing has been done to them, which it doesn't just go away. It's permanent. And he talked about being willing to serve his heavenly father there um, in verse number five. He says, I was not rebellious, neither turned I away. In verse six, I gave my back to the smiters. Clearly, we know who we're talking about here in verse number six. Who beat Jesus Christ with a cat of nine tails? I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And I mentioned how last, you know, I mentioned last week how we don't find in the New Testament, in the Gospels, about them pulling Jesus' beard out, but we do find it here. Plucked off the hair, I hid not my face from the shame and from the spitting, which is what we would want to do, right? And if we were put in such a shameful situation, situation, we would want to hide our face. It's sometimes almost humorous um, with, you know, the kids. If they're embarrassed or they get in trouble for something, you know, they like to try to hide their faces. You know, they'll cover their faces or go and put their face in a corner or cam in a feet. You're know, trying to make him eat. And he doesn't want to eat. You know, here, open your mouth and take a bite. And he practically turns himself all the way backwards and sticks his face into the corner of the chair as tight as he can so that you can't get whatever that food is into his mouth. It's natural for us to want to hide our faces in the midst of embarrassment, in the midst of trouble. It's natural for us to, uh, as he said there, um, for, for the, the shame and the spitting, you know, to, to want to cover ourselves so that people can't spit upon us, so that people can no longer embarrass us or hurt us. But Jesus stood there stone-faced. He's going to talk about that. He stood there stone-faced because he had made a determination long in advance that he knew this was coming and he was going to withstand it. And so that spit that came and ran down his face, that's nasty. But that spit that came and ran down his face, all it did was wipe some tears, maybe, that were already there. 
Because he looked into the faces of those people who were doing it, and instead of anger and bitterness, like you and I might feel towards them, he felt sorrow and pity because of the darkness they were living then in, causing such hatred against him. And they didn't even realize it. And he asked God to forgive them, for they knew not what they did. He said, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from the shame and the spitting for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be ashamed. We can just keep reading up here uh, through verse number nine. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. We go back there. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from them. Why? Because he said here, behold, the Lord God will help me. In the midst of that suffering and in the midst of that humiliation, in the midst of the pain, he had an unshakable confidence. I don't know about you. I don't have an unshakable confidence in a whole host of things. Like the older I get, the less I trust things. You know, As a kid, I just trusted whoever was driving the car to pay attention and to safely get us there. And I trusted whatever vehicle we were in to, for everything to just operate the way it was supposed to. And we were always going to get there. As a kid, I just trusted and had incredible faith in all of those things. Of course, as you grow older, you, uh, you see train wrecks and plane crashes and boats sink and all that kind of stuff. And you start to think, well, that kind of stuff does happen sometimes. And you begin to check more carefully into your vehicle or into the person driving or flying or, or whatever the case is. I don't have a great amount of faith in a lot of things human-wise. You stand up on the top of a tall tower. You ever been up on Sears Tower or maybe you were on the World Trade Center at some point in time? Or you stood up in the um, uh, Statue of Liberty. I remember going up into the crown of the Statue of Liberty when I was a boy. And you could just feel the shifting of the building under your feet. And that's kind of a unsettling, unnerving feeling. A lot of people don't like you know, being on ships because of that, because it's constantly moving and it's unsettled. There's nothing foundational under your feet and it makes your stomach go all topsy-turvy. And well, we won't go any further into that. And you wonder, is this building going to break? Is this the one time, the, the one time it's going to break and I'm going to be the one that's on it? You're hanging from a rope. Is this the one time the rope is going to break and it's going to be me that's the one hanging from it? But when you do trust something, you can stand there firmly. You know, it'd be one thing if I were to be out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on an aircraft carrier. An aircraft carrier is so massive that these, these large waves that are rolling through, is it, it's not going to affect the aircraft carrier nearly as much as it would affect that little 22-foot sailboat. A little 22-foot sailboat, I'm in control of it. You know, uh, I have every control of the sails and of the, the tiller stick 
and everything. But you know what? The waves are going to affect it a whole lot more. And so it's significantly more dangerous for me to be on the, on the open seas in that boat than it would be for me in an aircraft carrier over here. I would look at those storms and I would, you know, stand there bold stone faced before the, before the storm over here, I would be cowering in a corner waiting for my death. You know, Jesus set his, his face like a flint. And why could he do that in the midst of this suffering? Why, even though he knew from even before he was born into this world, from before this world was even born, think about that, he knew. I mean, Isaiah, he's writing this here thousands of years before Jesus would exist, before, his, before the, the man, Jesus, would be born, I should say. He wrote that long before, and he wrote exactly what was going to happen. And how could Jesus have set his face like a flint? Because despite what he was experiencing in that moment, he had a steadfast determination to obey the Lord God and to follow his way. And he knew that the Lord was going to help him. He had an unshakable confidence in the help of his Lord. The world doesn't understand that kind of unshakable confidence. That unshakable confidence does not come from us knowing that everything's going to be fine, though. Two people could be standing on the deck of the Titanic, one a preacher, one a salesman. And as that ship begins to sink, panic begins to pass through that ship, one is shaken and the other not. And how could that be so? They both are men. They're not getting on a lifeboat. They both face the same fate more than likely. Just because this one is a Christian does not mean that he automatically has a get-out-of-jail-free card for every possible death that comes along. But so why can he then be there unshakable in the face of that great tragedy, the great fear, the great unknown? It isn't because we know everything is going to be all right, but it is because we know who holds everything in his hand. We know who has brought or allow these circumstances to come to pass. And we know what is on the other side. Either we continue to serve the Lord here on this earth in our human form, or we go off into eternity with a new body, and we worship Him and serve Him there. But we know, unshakably so, what is coming next. And the lost do not have that confidence. There was a sermon preached by a well-known preacher, and the sermon was titled, The Redeemer's Face Set Like a Flint. And these were his main points and sub-points for his sermon. He asked the question, number one, how the steadfast resolve of Jesus was tested? How was Jesus' steadfast resolve tested? He said, by one, by the offers from the world, by the persuasions of his friends. Even his own friends cautioned him, don't go to Jerusalem. Jesus, in his heart, knew, I have to go to Jerusalem in order to secure salvation for all of mankind. And yet my friends begged me not to. And the world tempts me to go ahead and take my throne now and to not do it. How else was he tested? By the unworthiness of his clients. <laughs> Those who he was coming to save. Say unworthiness of his clients. Us. And those who were there at that moment who shouted, crucify him. He could have easily said, you know what? You don't deserve it. 
I don't owe you this. And so I'm not going to put myself through this for you. But he did. By the persuasions of his friend, the unworthiness of his clients, by the bitterness of the first few drops of suffering in Gethsemane, as he, as he knelt there in Gethsemane and, and sweat great drops, as it were, blood there, and it was greatly struggling with what was to come the next day, he could have turned then. By the ease at which he could have backed out of it had he wished to. Like the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. That's not what he did. By the taunts of those who mocked him, he was tested. By the full stress and agony of the cross, it would have been very easy. Having all power and all knowledge in the midst of such immense pain and anxiety, stress, frustration, humiliation, to say, to get up to the a certain point and say, I can't take it anymore, that's it. He did not get to that point. He was tested. The next question he says, he asks is this, how was the steadfast resolve of Jesus sustained? So we saw how he was tested. How was he sustained? One, by his divine schooling. He had spent time in the wilderness communing with God, his father. And let's stop and think about that for a second. We think, well, you know, Jesus was the son of God. And so he had this natural connection with God, the father, right? Well, then if that's the case, why did he need to spend time talking and praying with him? He did it a lot. So I guess we don't have to, right? Because we don't have that special connection as being the son of God. Actually, we are the sons of God. And how do we commune with God the Father in the same way that Jesus did? By praying and talking to him. If Jesus needed prayer to encourage him to do right, if Jesus needed prayer for encouragement in difficult times, if Jesus needed prayer and to talk to his heavenly father to help him take the next step of what he was supposed to do in the will of God, if Jesus needed prayer, what makes you think you don't need prayer? What makes you think you don't need to be on your knees before God? What makes us think that we are immune to trouble without the prayer? We need it. Arguably, we need it more than Jesus needed it. But he certainly went there. How else was he sustained? By his conscious innocence. His conscious innocence. He had never sinned before. He had never given in before. We all know that it's much easier to give in the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time, and so forth. He had never sinned. He had never given in to his own will above that of his father's. That helped to sustain him. Also by his unshakable confidence in the help of God. And that's what we see here in this verse. And the, the previous verse, really. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I shall not be confounded. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. And by the joy that was set before him. And we see that in another passage. Because of the joy that was set before him, he was faithful to the cross, because he saw not just the pain and the humiliation of the cross, but he saw beyond the cross to an eternity. And then his third point was this, how do we imitate the steadfast resolve of Jesus? Well, when there is something right, stand for it. 
Even if we have fallen once, twice, three times, a hundred thousand times, we determine this time where you're going to stand for what is right. And he also wrote this, when you have a right purpose that glorifies God, carry it out. Purpose, that, that's what the world is lacking. That's why people are ending their lives day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. People's lives are ending at their own hands. Just on the radio today, people over, overdosing on medication, trying not to wake up the next morning. Why? Because they're purposeless. If there's no joy that I can experience tomorrow, and I've got no uh, potential joy for the next several days or years, then why bother to wake up? Why not just go ahead and stop the misery? But we have a purpose. I pray that as a Christian, that you also have a God-given purpose for each day. That you have a God-given purpose for the week or for the year that God has laid upon your heart that you are to accomplish. I pray that God has laid it upon your heart through His Word, through the preaching, through the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is my purpose and plan for you. And sometimes that purpose and plan is as simple as brushing your teeth. And sometimes it is as long-term as going to this place and setting up shop and worshiping and serving the Lord to the best of your ability and beyond the best of your ability. But when God gives you a purpose, you carry it out. And Jesus said, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. The courage of the Messiah here, it's not a bland resignation to fate. It's a confident assurance in God. I know I shall not be ashamed. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to stand up and say, God is going to protect me. God is going to protect me. God is going to protect me. Oops, God didn't protect me. Jesus knew how it was supposed to work. He had prayed about it. God had given him a purpose. And so he stood there. God is going to handle this situation. Yes, here I am dying. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that God's not in control. I know that's, that kind of counters what we think, doesn't it? Just because I hang here dying up on the cross does not mean that I've lost. Does not mean that God is not in control. It means that God is working a miracle through me right now. That God has planned something amazing through my death. Something that he plans to work. And so he could stand there, stone-faced, boldly doing what he knew was right. He also says, he is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? This is kind of his way of quoting Romans 8.31, where the Bible says, if God is for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so Jesus, the Messiah here says, he is near that justifieth me. Who will contend me? Here I hang up on the cross, yes, but you know what? My God, my heavenly Father's right there. He is near that justifieth me. So go ahead and, and bring it, world. Bring it, Satan. He is near. In fact, the reason why Romans 8.31 even applies to us is because it applied to Jesus first. If Jesus stands in this place of victory, then all of those who are in Christ stand in that place of victory as well. And then verse number 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. And stay upon his God. You see here what might appear to be a contradiction. He asks a question. Who is here among you that you, you fear the Lord and you obey the voice of a servant 
You walk in the darkness, but yet there seems to be no light. I want you to look at, to notice something here in verse number 10. We see in verse number 10, light. We're going to see in verse number 11, fire and sparks. In verse number 10, light here is a good thing. It comes from God. In verse number 11, when we see fire and sparks, this is a negative thing. We'll get to verse number 11 here in just a second. But he asked the question in verse 10, Who is among you that feareth the Lord and obeyeth the voice of his servant? He's speaking to his people here, and he is challenging them to fear the Lord and obey his servant. I read a quote, Only he who knows how to obey can call others to obedience. Maybe if I were to say it in more modern vernacular, we can't just say, don't do as I say, or don't, don't do as I do, but do as I say. You know, children don't, don't learn that way. You know, just obey me. Don't copy me. That doesn't work that way. They copy us. They may try to just do, and do what we tell them to do for a time, but eventually they ultimately end up copying us. Only he who knows how to obey can call others to obedience. Who, among you that feareth the, who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant? That walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. The Messiah here is guiding his people into the path of light. Simply trust in the name of the Lord. Rely upon your God. You say, well, that's simplistic. It is simple, but it's not very easy. To just rely upon the Lord. To just trust in the Lord but I don't feel like I can give that much, but I don't feel like I can dedicate that much time to service. I don't feel like I have these talents, but God has opened the store and I feel like he's trying to push me through it, but I don't think I really know how or have the gift set for this thing, but God is, seems to be pushing me through this door. What do I do? It's one thing to say fully rely upon God in faith. It's a whole other thing to actually follow through on that. But he attempts here to encourage us. And so this verse can be spoken to you. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? You are a believer, but you're struggling. Maybe struggling in areas of faith or struggling in areas of sin. What ought we to do? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay. This term stay is to lean. Lean upon his God. Why would I need to lean upon something? I only need to lean upon something if I am not able to bear my own weight. And so then if my legs hurt or are grown tired or grown weak, I then begin to lean on something. Or if I have an injury, I then begin to lean upon the crutch and I put my weight and I trust upon that thing. Why does he tell us to lean upon him? Because he knows we can't bear our own burdens. He knows we can't bear the weight and the consequences and the guilt of our own sin and the battle against our own sin. He knows we can't bear that. And so he says, here I am. I am a brick wall. Come and lean upon me and I will take that burden for you. He calls us to stay upon him. But, verse number 11, it says, Behold, all ye that kindle a fire 
that compass yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. You may look at the verse initially and think fire and sparks. Is he still talking about a, a positive thing here uh, to his people Israel? But when you see what he ultimately gives them at the end, you shall lie down in sorrow. We see that the fire and sparks are not a good thing here. Think about it. Verse 10, he's offering, and the whole, the whole chapter, he's offering light. He's offering light. He is the light in life. We talked about that on Sunday morning, that he is the light in life. And so now he's talking to folks who are walking in darkness and he don't have that light. So what do they try to do? They try to kindle their own fire. They try to make their own light. Maybe it's this metaphysical inner light that we all have because we're all little gods, you know, and this, this inner light that, that many would teach that we have uh, that you have to kindle and that you have to grow your inner light, your inner being, and through meditation and other things. Maybe that's one of those little fires that we try to kindle or the worship of other false gods or intellectualism or philosophy, any number of things where we try to rep replace the light that is Jesus Christ. And we try to build a little fire over here to generate our own light. And he talks about sparks. You know, you surround yourself with sparks. You're in darkness and it troubles you and you want to see, you want to know where you're stepping. But what is a spark? It's a flash and it's gone. It's weak. There's no power to it. There's no longevity to it. It's temporary. Much like mankind's attempts to replace the gospel, to replace the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to replace faith and trust in God. He says it's nothing but fires and surrounding yourselves with sparks. And he says, go ahead and do that. But you know what's going to happen. You shall lie down in sorrow. And this idea of lying down, you're giving up. You will realize the futility of it. You're going around and you're trying to light all those fires and you're trying to create light to be able to see and understand in this dark world. You're trying to find purpose. You're trying to find meaning. But you won't, you won't accept God. You won't accept any of that old-fashioned religious stuff. No, I've got to find some meaning someplace else. And so there's sparks, but it's only temporary. And you try it for a month. You try it for a year. And then you move on to something else. How many people do you know live lives like that? Just trying one thing after another, trying to find purpose and meaning in their lives. And it's just sparks that grow, glow brightly for a short time. And then are put out very quickly. Because there was no fuel there. There was no reality there. So they're going to end up lying down. Whether this is referring to death. Or this is referring to resigning themselves to their ultimate fate of eternity. This term sorrow has the idea of torment. So they're going to ultimately end up resigning themselves to an eternity of torment. You think about that. We watch the world around us kindle fires. Let's not get caught up in applauding the world for their kindled fires and sparks. 
Let's not get caught up in wishing we could be more like them or have more of the things that they have or earn their respect or model ourselves after what they say and how they dress. Because all they have is a spark. For some, it might be their 15 minutes of fame before they grow up and are no longer a child actor, musician. For others, it may be that, that short period of time where they got involved in some, uh, you know, Eastern mysticism and, and things really just seem to be great and they, they have peace because of their meditations, but very quickly, the facade wears thin. And they realize there's actually nothing there to sustain themselves upon. And ultimately, they are going to end up, because of all of their own schemes and their own gods, because of the rejection of the light of God's word, they're going to end up lying down in torments, in terrible punishment, in sorrow, as it says here. So as we go into Christmas, let's remember that, you know, the star at the top of the tree, you know, it's there for a reason. It's, yes, the star of Bethlehem. But to me, it's more than that. It's light, the light of the gospel, the light that Jesus Christ is supposed to be. I've often thought about, you know, decorating our house around Halloween in white lights <laughs> and, you know, um, trying, you know, thinking about you know, something, that, some sign or something that could talk about how Jesus is the light, you know, during a time where they worship darkness and things that hide in darkness and great evil and wickedness and monsters and demons and devils and death, you know, when they're worshiping all of that stuff, which is completely counter to God. Maybe as Christians, we ought to be promoting light during that time of year instead. Amen. Same thing at Christmas too, though. Now there's a lot of light out there, yeah? And we went in some gardens in Richmond and saw a lot of lights, real beautiful. There's a house near us that's got a bunch of inflatables and they must have 150 inflatables out in their front yard. And I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating at all. It's more inflatable, lit up inflatables than I've ever seen of everything under the sun, you know, from nativities to the Grinch and um, peanuts and, you know, Santa Claus and all that stuff. Those ones will drive by so the kids can see all those inflatables out there in the, the person's front yard. There's a lot of light, quote unquote, this time of year, but not enough of Jesus Christ this time of year. Amazingly, being that we're celebrating his birth. And so in chapter 51, he, again, Wait, the good, exciting stuff is going on here because now it's the Messiah talking. And it's exciting, not just, not just because of the subject material, because it's hard material, you know, to talk about him giving his back to the smiters and having his beard ripped out and stuff and, and Israel's rejection. You know, that, that's not pleasant material in one sense to talk about, but yet it is also, on the other hand, the most exciting material to talk about because it is a foretelling of the Messiah who would come that would give us eternal hope so that you and I can see here today, not because we feel we have to be in church, but because we have been freed from sin and we want to continue even freed to serve the Lord with the rest of our lives. And we desire greatly to study his word and be a part of it. Praise the Lord for folks that desire to study the word of God, that come out here even after it's dark and even when it's cold and sit out here in these pews and endure, you know, me for an hour as I talk and sing and just to, to study and to learn the word of God and, and to glean just a few things maybe out of the word of God. And now we get into more. In chapter 51, the people need to fear God. But the Lord is going to rescue his people in chapter number 52. 
Then I can't wait to get to chapter number 53 and the previous verses where God's servant, of course, that's Jesus Christ, is going to be despised. And we'll talk about these future passages as we move on on Wednesday evenings. Maybe the Lord's worked on your heart concerning something this evening. We don't usually do, you know, invitations on Wednesday nights. But maybe the Lord's worked in your heart this evening concerning something. And you need to get it settled between you and the Lord. Maybe the Lord's attempting to rekindle or the Holy Spirit's attempting to rekindle a fire in your heart. Where it was supposed to be. If the Lord's worked in your heart tonight, let's just all bow our heads and close our eyes. Would you get it dealt with now between you and the Lord? We're all seated, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Take this moment now to just maybe rededicate something or surrender something to the Lord. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness. Maybe you need to reinstitute your prayer life. If Jesus needed to pray and talk to his Heavenly Father, how much more do we need to? Would you take the moment now to do that? You have been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.